Hello and welcome to St. Paul's United Methodist Church's Sermon Podcast. I'm Pastor Mike Agnew, and it's good to have you listening to our sermons this way. If you don't belong to our church family and you're interested in learning more, you can go to our website at www.cherokeemethodist.com, and there you can find out more information about our worship services and everything that we have to offer. Now, today we are continuing our sermon series that we started last week called Why Methodist? Focusing on what it is that makes us unique as United Methodists. There are many churches in our area and in our town. So what makes us unique? What makes us different? And yet I use that word uniqueness in humility, realizing that even though there might be something that makes us somewhat unique, They might be things that you find are true of your own faith tradition if you happen to belong to a different faith tradition and you're listening to this. So what makes us unique as Methodists? At the end of last Sunday's sermon, I shared a quote from John Wesley in which he said that he wasn't concerned that the people called Methodists would ever cease to exist, but that they would have the form of religion without the power. And he said this would undoubtedly be the case unless we kept the practices that we had at first. So we're taking a look at some of the practices that make us unique. So today's sermon is called A Religion of the Head and the Heart, which basically says that what we believe is that the head and the heart are both important in our faith. What do I mean by that? Well, When we think of the head, we think of the intellect. We think of things that we think and believe. When we think of the heart, we think of things like feelings and experiences and emotions. We believe that both are important aspects of the faith. But yet on their own, they are insufficient. So let's talk first of all about a religion of the head. A religion of the head would refer to things that we believe about God, things that we think. And so a religion of the head is very important. It's very important for us to know what we believe. It's very important for us to know who God is. Because after all, if we say that we're following God and we're worshiping God, we should know the person that we're following. Right? So we need to know things about God. It's very important to us. We think of a religion of the head specifically when we think of scholars and those in academia, and it's very important that they have that so that they can teach us. But we also think of a religion of the head whenever we think about what we believe. Some churches emphasize a religion of the head when they say that what what we believe is what matters. But a religion of the head without the heart can be all about thinking. So some churches some churches emphasize what we believe about God to the exclusion of everything else, and they would teach that all that matters or what is most important is what you believe about God. And so if we don't emphasize what we experience of God or a relational aspect with God, then we're missing something. In fact, John Wesley the founder of the Methodist movement, who grew up in the Methodist tradition. Well, he didn't grow up in the Methodist tradition, but he grew up in a Christian tradition, a very Christian family. He felt that something was missing in his own life. He had a religion of the head, but not necessarily of the heart. He gained it eventually. 
We'll get into that. But a religion of the heart is very important to the faith. This this refers to the emotional experience of God. When you feel God present in your life, when you feel the Holy Spirit at work in your life, when you feel that God is with you, anytime you think about the relationship that you have with God, that's the religion of the heart. And religion of the heart is very important because it's where we feel close to God. This can include also mystical experiences, visions, and things of that nature. Many people in the Bible have these things happen to them, and others throughout history have as well. But it's very important for us to have that aspect of the faith. But nonetheless, a religion of the heart by itself is not sufficient. If we do not also have a religion of the head, a religion of the heart can lead us astray. Because we can go off the rails, so to speak, with what we experience. Because it's not perfect. We're not perfect. In fact, you can go off the rails if you just have a religion of the head as well, just in a different way. And so both the religion of the head and a religion of the heart are important, but without the other, each one is insufficient. And so we believe in a religion of both the head and the heart. In other words, we believe that as many of those in evangelical Pentecostal traditions do, that we need to experience God, right? That's important, and what we feel is important. But like other faith traditions, we also believe that it's important to know what we believe. It's important to get education. It's important to focus our intellect on God as well. And so we believe that both things are vital to the faith. So what does that look like, practically speaking? Well, when we talk about what that looks like, we, or at least I think of the Wesleyan quadrilateral, which is a big word, but it's really simple. Wesleyan comes from John Wesley's last name. Quadrilateral, the word quad, means four. So basically what this means is that we have four tools at our disposal to help us to understand God. Primary among them is the Bible or scriptures. This is the primary way that we come to know God. The scriptures are foundational. But nonetheless, scripture by itself, we need help. Let's put it that way. We need help for us to interpret it. Because without tools to help us to interpret Scripture, we're never going to understand it. You see, contrary to what some people believe, we can't just read the Bible outside of our own context. We're always reading the Bible, at least if you're like me, you're always reading the Bible from a 21st century American perspective. That's not good or bad, it just is. It's true of everyone from any time period. We cannot completely fully escape our culture. In fact, the Bible writers were products of their own culture and time as well. They're inspired, but they're also products of their own time and culture. So we cannot fully escape our culture. We need help to interpret the Bible. Even the act of reading the Bible is an act of interpretation. For one thing, when you read an English translation, it's an interpretation. Because very rarely is there complete equivalency between one language and another. 
It's quite common for interpreters to come across a word in one language that does not have an equivalent in the other language that carries quite the same meaning. And so sometimes they have to pick and choose. They have to choose a word that they think best conveys what they believe the meaning of the original language is. And they may or may not be fully accurate. And so that's why we have so many different English translations with different words chosen, because we really don't know for sure the best translation. So we're interpreting whenever we read the Bible. So we need things to help us with that. And the things that we have in the Wesleyan quadrilateral include experience, tradition, and reason. Those are the three things. So let's briefly look at each one. First of all, there's experience. And it's exactly what you'd think it is. It's what we experience in life. Our experience could include anything. Our experience of other people, our experience of the world around us, our experience of other cultures. Whatever we experience can inform how we read and interpret Scripture. So a lot of people get nervous about this because they think, well, if we use our experiences to interpret Scripture, well, then we could believe anything. And that's something that we want to be careful about because we want to be humble about our experiences and realize that not everything we believe or not everything about our faith has to line up with our experiences right? We're limited. But nonetheless, experience can inform how we understand Scripture. This happened even in the Bible days. I'll give you an example. In the Old Testament, it's very clear that people are to, Jewish people who follow God are to circumcise themselves for the males. The males are to be circumcised. There are rules about what you can eat and what you cannot eat. And these commandments were not given an expiration date. It was assumed in the Bible times that these commandments were to last forever, because it actually says that in the Bible. And yet in the New Testament, we have people like the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter who are preaching to non-Jewish people whom they call Gentiles, even though they believe they should not associate with Gentiles. They did. And when they preached the good news of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. So they have this experience where they see the Holy Spirit coming upon these non-Jewish people. They're speaking in tongues. They're, I mean, they have all the signs that God is with them and God accepts them as they are. And so they say, why shouldn't they be baptized? And then they came to the conclusion, we shouldn't put the burden on these people of having to become Jewish, having to be circumcised, dietary restrictions, etc., etc., they kept one dietary restriction, not to eat the blood of the animal, and that was to help with unity between Jews and non-Jews. But, you know, by and large, they reinterpreted how they read those Old Testament laws in light of what they had experienced. And so experience can help us interpret Scripture. So there's experience, then there's also tradition. Tradition refers to the 2,000-plus year history of the church. And basically, tradition says, look, when we are coming to know God, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We don't have to start from scratch because we have such a treasure trove of people who've gone before us, who have worked out things in the faith. They've written commentaries and books. And, 
sermons. I mean, there are all kinds of different resources available to us. We don't have to start from scratch. And the idea of tradition is that if the church, if most of the church has believed something for the vast majority of their history, then it adds weight to that belief. And the burden of the proof is going to be on the person who says that what the church has always believed is wrong. Now, that being said, that doesn't mean that tradition is perfect either. Tradition has its limits. And just because most people in the church have believed something from most of church history does not make it right. You know, there's nothing about that that makes something inherently right just because most people believe it for a long time. In fact, we could say, it could be argued that church history is a constant story of the church reforming itself. You know, the church today looks very little like the church of the first century, and I don't know that that's necessarily a bad thing. It's not necessarily good or bad, it's just that things change. And we constantly reform ourselves. And I think that that's a healthy practice. So, tradition can affect a lot of things, but let me give you an example. In the United Methodist Church, we have been ordaining women for over 50 years now. There are Bible verses that seem to be clear that women should not be ordained. And yet, in light of new information that we know today that we didn't know before, we interpret those scriptures differently. Right? So that's just one example. So tradition has its limits, but nonetheless it does add weight. So, for example, if someone were to come and say, I don't think we should believe that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit anymore. Well, you know, we can hear them out, but the burden of the proof is on the Trinity. So, okay, we have experience, tradition. The last one is reason. This has to do with our minds. We believe that we shouldn't check our brains at the door of the church, but we use all of our intellect, all of our minds that God has given us to make sense out of the faith, and what we believe should make sense. Now, again... We have to be humble because there are limits to that because we cannot fully comprehend the nature of God, right? We can't even understand all the workings of the universe, what makes us think that God should constantly make rational sense to us, right? That It doesn't. God doesn't make rational sense to us all the time, and that's okay. There's a saying that I like, and it says, I only know enough to know that I don't know as much as I should know. I only know enough to know that I don't know as much as I should know. And that basically conveys the idea that the more we learn about life and about whatever it is we're studying, the more complicated we see that it is and the more questions we have. And that's actually a sign that we're growing. So we have to be humble about the limits of rationality, the limits of our intellect. But nonetheless... To some extent, it should make sense. And sometimes our rationality, what makes sense using our brains, can help inform how we read the Bible. So, for instance, uh, science and what we know and believe from science can inform how we read certain portions of Scripture. And an example of this would be when the... when people started to realize that the earth was not at the center of the universe. Today, we laugh the idea that the earth is the center of the universe. We just laugh that off, right? We're so used to the idea 
that uh, the earth revolves ar around the sun. But before we knew that, people believed the earth was the center of the universe and everything else revolved around it. And there were certain scriptures that refer to this idea that they read literally. And there was an embarrassing amount of conflict in the church over this idea. And now, like I said, we accept it. And we read those scriptures that talk about the earth being still or being in the center of the universe or resting on pillars. We read those scriptures differently now than we used to. And so that's what that means. Basically, you know, all these things, experience, tradition, and reason, help us to understand Scripture. We believe that we should use everything we have and bring it all to the table when it comes to faith. Sometimes we can tend to de-emphasize one thing over another, but it's important to have both the heart and the mind involved in the faith. You know, kids sometimes go off to college. And growing up in church, they were never challenged to ask hard questions of the faith. They were never really asked to think for themselves. And then when they get to college, they're introduced to all of these ideas that are readily available, but they're not introduced to them until they get to college. And then they believe that they have to make a, a decision between ignoring their brains and just continuing to believe in a faith that doesn't make sense anymore, or leaving the faith in good integrity and using their brains and thinking about the world around them. And, and so then we give colleges a bad rap because we say, oh, kids go to college and then they get corrupted and they lose their faith. No, no, they don't get corrupted as much as they're just introduced to ideas that are just out there and they were never exposed to them before. And so they're, you know, their only version of the faith is one that can't be challenged. And so when it's challenged, they believe they have to abandon it, and that's not the case at all. We, we, we believe that we do not have to make a choice between our faith and our brains. We believe that we can think and we can use our minds to learn more and understand more about God. And we believe, at least the best of us in the United Methodist Church, when we're at our best, I should say, we believe that there are no questions that shouldn't be asked. Because if your faith cannot withstand certain questions being asked, it's not a very strong faith, and I'm not sure it's one worth having. Right? So we believe, as United Methodists, that we use everything that we have to understand God. We use our reason. We use our experiences. We use our, our brains. We are a religion of the head and the heart. And we want to understand Scripture. What we believe is important. What we experience of God is also important. All of these things are important. And so, you know, I believe that it's important, as Wesley said, to have a religion of the heart and the mind, the heart and the head. At the seminary that I went to, Asbury Theological Seminary, there was a saying, their motto, and it goes like this. It says, where head and heart go hand in hand. And indeed, I think that that's important. And the greatest commandment of God of, that Jesus gave is to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so that's what it means. We love God with 
everything we've got, with everything God has given us, we use to inform our faith. And so may it be so. God bless and have a great week.